Once again, it's election night in America. And once again, we are waiting to see what message exactly is resonating with Republican voters in places like South Carolina. Results of some new key tests of Donald Trump's power over his party there and, of course, elsewhere. Now, they say that revenge is a dish best served cold. Well, let's see whether voters in states where Republican incumbents refuse to precisely follow Trump will find themselves now on the menu. It's not that this is the first time that Trump's personal persona non gratas have been challenged, but these are the first so-called Trump revenge primaries, you could say, at least since the January 6th committee hearings have gotten underway. Now, the first time since the broader electorate has had an opportunity to at least hear testimony about the events leading up to the insurrection and Donald Trump's possible role in fomenting and pushing known election lies. Known because even his family members and top Republican aides were, were learning, were adamant that there simply was no there there. Now, Trump is not on any of these ballots. But the connective tissue is a platform that echoes his sentiments. But as much as the committee has tried to convey that what we saw on January 6th is a continued threat, the question is whether these hearings impact the voters at all perhaps giving them any pause about electing a Trump-backed candidate, assuming, of course, they even watched these hearings. And even still, the 2020 lies are casting a very big shadow over many of these 2022 races, particularly in South Carolina, where the polls have now closed, but votes are still being counted. So here's where that revenge part comes in again. You've got two incumbent Republican members of Congress in this deep red state, and they're fighting to stay after breaking with the ex-president over his lies. Tom Rice is one of 10 Republicans in the House who voted to impeach Trump for incitement of insurrection. Now, you have Nancy Mace, who bucked Trump and voted to certify President Biden's victory on just her third day in the U.S. Congress. So, perhaps unsurprisingly, Trump has now thrown his weight behind both of their challengers. His debunked fraud claims are also at the center of GOP contests in the swing state of Nevada tonight. Polls there are still open until the end of this hour, so stay tuned on that. And running for Senate with the Trump stamp of approval is former State Attorney General Adam Laxalt, who once filed lawsuits attempting to overturn Trump's loss in Nevada. It's a key race that could impact who controls the chamber in November, and a good chance, frankly, for the GOP to flip a Democratic seat. Now, Laxalt is running against Army veteran Sam Brown. And then there's the race secretary of state over there. The question now is, will voters choose a vocal proponent of Trump's stolen election claims to um, oversee future elections now in Nevada? That's Jim Marchant, who attended QAnon conventions and is now known for supporting conspiracy theories. He's on the campaign trail that if he were Secretary of State in 2020, that he wouldn't have certified Biden's victory. Now, many voters have already nominated dozens of Republican candidates for state and also federal office who have backed Trump's false fraud claims. In fact, at least 108, according to a new tally by The Washington Post. So the question for the committee and everyone watching is, will the revelations we've learned through these hearings stop that in its tracks, stop the trajectory of it all? Well, the thing is, the art of persuasion requires those revelations from the committee to be fully accurate. Remember when the panel accused the Trump campaign just yesterday of using election lies to swindle supporters of money? 
Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren called it the big ripoff and later on CNN pointed to one example of Donald Trump Jr.'s fiance, Kimberly Guilfoyle, getting paid about $60,000 to speak for about two and a half minutes at the Stop the Steal rally on January 6th. Now, sources tell CNN today that it was actually a conservative pro-Trump organization called Turning Point Action who gave Guilfoyle that big paycheck. So CNN did its due diligence and went back to Lofgren, and she said this. Did you mischaracterize that payment? Oh, I don't think so. It, it's one, it's a part and parcel of the Trump campaign. But the, the question is, uh, are Trump individuals benefiting from this whole um, enterprise of raising money around the, the so-called Stop the Steal? And the answer is yes. Hmm. Let the voters decide whether it was a think so or a definitely not. The committee also just released more testimony of Trump campaign attorney Eric Hirschman talking about how he warned conservative lawyer John Eastman to back off his plans to file appeals in Georgia back in 2020. Now, we heard some some of this yesterday, but not all. I said to him, are you out of your effing mind? I said, I said, I only want to hear two words coming out of your mouth for now on. Orderly transition. Eventually, he said, orderly transition. I said, good, John. Now I'm going to give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life. Get a great effing criminal defense lawyer. You're going to need it. And then I hung up on him. Mm. Remember the soundbite stopped yesterday at the only tell me two of those words. This is all really coming down to a test of credibility. Both Trump, of course, and what we've been hearing from the January 6th committee themselves. And ultimately, it's up to the voters to decide what they believe and who they believe and whether they want to move past January 6th or beyond it or have a yearning to learn even more. I'm joined now by Michelle Cottle from the New York Times editorial board, Casey Hunt, our chief national affairs analyst, and Ramesh Panuru, the editor for National Review. I'm glad you're all here with me today. I'm wondering, first of all, when you hear and think more about this test of all these primaries, a lot of focus has been on Donald Trump. He's not on any of these ballots. He casts quite a very big shadow, but also a wide net on those who have gone against him. Do you think that he will be triumphant in being able to serve that revenge? Well, I think we're finding that in these primaries... Trump's endorsement matters more than any other person's endorsement. It is valuable. It is very valuable to these candidates. And these candidates will do a lot, and sometimes at the cost of their own dignity, in order to get that endorsement. But other things like the quality of the candidate, the issue, the nature of the particular electorate, they matter too. Right now, for example, in those two South Carolina races, Nancy Mace is running ahead of where Tim Rice is, is running, or excuse me, Tom Rice is running, because partly it's a different district, uh, Mace's got a more moderate district than Rice, and partly because Mace just basically just criticized Trump and didn't vote with him on some issues. Rice actually voted to impeach him, and I think that's a different kind of line for a lot of Republican voters. Yeah, they had the same fate in many ways, right? You can say, third day in Congress, I'm going to certify the president of the United States of having won, but that's a bridge too far. And she has the same fate in terms of not being endorsed by Trump. Is that the new standard? Well, she also has a different kind. I mean, the the person that Trump endorsed against her has run before in that district and lost. So 
It, yeah, it, so it's it's a different kind of district. It's a different kind of setup. And, you know, Trump has endorsed candidates before who just haven't cut it. I mean, David Perdue in Georgia was an absolute disaster running against Brian Kemp. Now, my contention, Georgia was a question of a governor versus a congressperson, which tends to be a little bit different. Governors have their own brand that people tend to kind of already have a little bit of brand loyalty. But again, you know, also with the um, Secretary of State down, down there, Brad Raffensperger, Trump endorsed his opponent and kind of recruited Jody Heiss to get in there, and he lost in that case as yeah. well. So it does matter what the candidates are like, kind of what their records are, and also just kind of what the district and the you know constituencies are. I think we have to be a little bit careful about reading too much Trump into every single political mm-hmm. thing that's going on because he's clearly a factor. I mean, he's become, you know, are you Republican enough? Are you to the right enough? Are you Trumpy enough is now the test, right? And so in, in one of these races tonight, it looks like uh, Congressman Rice, who voted for impeachment, is on track to lose. He may not even make it into a runoff, uh, which would really be kind of a rebuke and a repudiation. But you got to keep in mind, again, the geography. I mean, he's up in the Myrtle Beach area of South Carolina. It's more conservative. It's more populist, honestly. Um, I'm I'm looking for kind of the right word to to say Trumpy without (laughs) describing it exactly that way. Um, And also the former president has really taken it upon himself to particularly target those who were willing to vote for impeachment. I mean, that is like the ultimate sin in his view. The, The other race, I mean, Nancy Mace criticized him. She also, to a certain extent, tried to make some amends. I mean, she went up to Trump Tower and shot a video of herself in front of it. Um, you know, Rice has not done that. He's not shown any remorse or any kind of concern about what he did. Um, that district, as uh, Ramesh pointed out, it's it's more moderate. It's Charleston. Part of it is, uh, you know, there's a lot of transplants down there that kind of country club conservatives. Maybe some of them are never Trumpers. Um, if you're looking at some of the early results that have been coming in so far tonight, the areas that are to the north of Charleston, a little bit more rural, a lot more conservative, those are going for Katie Arrington. She's someone who was like a particularly Trumpy candidate all the way along to the point that she lost um, to a, a Democrat in this district. And I think, you know, that's what Republicans writ large are concerned about, right? They are concerned that Trump will select candidates that are frankly, like, not okay for some of these other areas. I mean, that's what Mitch McConnell was worried about in Georgia. They lost two Senate seats in Georgia because of this. Well, one of the concerns I have, and maybe it's the reason you were unable to find another word for Trumpy, because you hear the committee, and frankly, it's been read into everything. There were, beginning before the committee hearings, there were thoughts of, will they focus on Trump? Will they try to make this a singular focus? Will that be the, the goal here? Or to make it more broad? And in doing so, I've often wondered... Is this feeding into the hands of being able to say, hey, the same former president who would say, they're after me, they're after you, they're trying to go through me, they're after, after you, though. Does this actually legitimize some of the claims that people who might not be watching are saying, see, it's all about Trump for you all, so why not make it about Trump? But it is about Trump, right? Because the committee hearing is mostly about Honestly, 2024. Well, no, the and committee the re- hearing is about Trump. But should these primaries be about Trump? You yourself right. talked about the idea of not reading well, into every situation. But, but Trump has worked so very hard to make these primaries about him. I mean, he right. has put money into them. <laughs> yeah. He has gone to rallies. Yeah. He talks it up in terms of, you know, they're backing me. They're loyal. They're perfect. And he is working the entire field. I mean, he has handed out 
tons of endorsements. I mean, mostly to front runners and incumbents, mm-hmm. so that yeah, he he's can been rack up some to so say, like, "Hey, I support you." To say that he's a good record. Exactly it. He's he's taken. He's gone out on a limb in only a few cases, and sometimes he's changed his mind when it looks like his you know original Alabama. Like, I'm sorry, but we're back and forth and back again in the Alabama Senate race. I mean, you know, I think when when you're when you're talking about the January 6th committee hearings and kind of how they relate to the midterm elections, I honestly think the reality is they don't relate much at all because people who are voting in these elections have pretty much made up their mind about it. Uh, But what the committee is trying to do is make a case that this guy shouldn't be the nominee in 2024. Well, and that matters. What was interesting is the only thing we all agreed on was that Trump was padding his margin. I don't know what that says about anything about other discussions, but okay. Stay with us. There's more to come in just a moment here. And coming up, not even our libraries, our libraries are safe from hate. The Proud Boys storming in and spreading fear at a drag queen story hour. Did social media inspire them? We're going to get an update on the criminal investigation and what the performer is saying about all this next. hate crime investigation is underway tonight after a group of men with ties to the hate group, the Proud Boys, stormed a San Francisco area library while it hosted a Pride Month event known as Drag Queen Story Hour. Now keep in mind, children were inside of that room. Now the police say that the group of at least five men wore offensive t-shirts and shouted anti-gay and anti-trans slurs while also flashing white power hand signs. They directed their aggression toward drag performer Panda Dulce as she read a storybook to children. They said, who brought the tranny? Um, It's a groomer. It's a pedophile. Um, Why do you bring your kids to this event? A lot of people are asking me, like, do you feel safe? Are you okay? And the answer is no, I don't. Um, I don't feel safe in my own home. Remember, this wasn't the only threat that involved a far-right group and an LGBTQ event. That same day, in Idaho, police arrested 31 white supremacists who planned to riot at a local Pride event. They arrested on charges of conspiracy to riot. So the question is, will there be charges in this California case? Lieutenant Ray Kelly is the spokesman for the Alameda County Sheriff's Office, which is investigating the entire incident. Lieutenant, thank you for being here today. When we hear about what has happened there, I keep thinking in my mind, of course, that there were children who were at this event, children who were witnessing the Proud Boys arrive on scene and do this very thing. I understand that you actually had some hate crime protocols that were then followed and even investigating this incident. Tell me about that. Well, absolutely. When we learned of this incident, um, initially, uh, when we got there, the disturbance had kind of dissipated and de-escalated itself. uh, And we didn't know a lot of the dynamics of what had gone on until we began to uh, have conversations after the fact. Um, Our subsequent investigation uh, into this uh, has caused us some concern. And so we did activate our hate crime protocol, uh, which will take us on an investigative course uh, looking at this case through a a hate crime lens in particular against our pride community and our lgbt community here uh, in uh, alameda county now how were you first alerted to the incident itself and if you could describe a little bit more about what that hate crime protocol looks like 
So we first learned of the incident um, after uh, 911, our deputies responded to that scene for a report of a disturbance. Uh, upon uh, arriving there, the scene was uh, much less chaotic than has been described by uh, Panda Dolce uh, in the previous video. Um, it was much more benign. We were able to contact five individuals who identified themselves as members of the Proud Boy organization. And they had told us that they took uh, exception at the library story hour and that they were there to protest that event. Um, we uh, began to be concerned when in talking to the organizer when they expressed the threats of violence, the threats of fear. Um, the transphobic and homophobic language that was used against our event organizer. And so that uh, is bringing us in a different direction. Right now, we're trying to focus on getting all the information. There's video out there. There's um, video from the library. There's video that's been taken by people involved in the event. And so our investigators are compiling all of that information. We'll collect all that data and information and reports, and then we'll send it to our district attorney and have those legal experts look at this case um, from a hate crimes perspective. And of course, we'll have to balance the notion of what will be the obvious retort of, hey, under the First Amendment, I have every right to be in this right. public space in a library. But of course, if there were threats of violence, if there were other charges that could be brought, they'll explore those. But tell me about these individual men who were involved here. Are they from the community? Because it, it might surprise people to know. I mean, we're talking about an area that really, near the Bay Area, the epicenter of the Pride movement. I'm, I'm shocked that this is happening there in particular, as if it should be okay in any place in the world, of course. But there in particular, were these men from your community? So they're, they're not from Alameda County in particular, which is the eastern portion of the Bay Area. But uh, we know that they're from certain uh, communities within the Bay Area. Uh, they're a small group of individuals. Uh, and they, they do not represent uh, this. You know, we've, we've had, uh, we are uh, the epicenter of pride. Uh, and a lot of the civil rights actions that have taken place over many decades has started here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so we usually Pride Month in June is very uneventful for us. There's, there's hundreds of events that go on um, throughout the Bay Area and they are they go off without a hitch. We were very surprised that our little library in San, in San Lorenzo became uh, kind of a point of contention with this group. And so uh, that's been very disturbing to our our library workers and the people that go to that library. And so thankfully we've already spent a lot of time at that library uh, ourselves. We host a reading program there um, and those relationships have paid off, but there, there's a lot of uncertainty. And then this has stirred a lot of debate uh, nationally. And so the, the library has been the focal point of a lot of uh, for and against uh, this issue. Well, Lieutenant, it's also disturbing, of course, and the focal point, I want to play for you a little bit more of what the performer Panda Dulce had to say about how this particular incident really was triggering for a number of reasons and felt different than previous instances that she had, he was aware of at some point. Here it is. <clears throat> I think what felt different about this time is how emboldened they were. They marched right in with their cameras. They were just very confident in what they stood for. And whereas before it was just a small smattering of folks wielding Jesus signs, this time, it felt very close to violence. When you hear, and excuse me, her pronoun is she, when you hear what she had to say about that and the idea of the proximity to violence, how are there ways to reassure this community in particular in your area that this is not on a different trajectory? 
Well, I, I think that's that's very that's very true, and I think that when people have feelings and um, how they feel is important. Um, and I know that in this particular incident, some of the individuals were wearing shirts that had uh, weapons and, and rifles on the shirts and that had language about killing pedophiles. And I can imagine that when they entered the room with, with children uh, in a peaceful area like a library, that it was very aggressive and very alarming. And I'm sure that that those feelings um, that, that she uh, experienced are, are very valid. And so, um, but that is one of the main concerns too, is the fact that uh, you, you cannot go into a library and annoy or harass or cause a disturbance with children in California, it, it is a crime. Um, and so that's one of the angles we'll be looking at. Also looking at uh, any criminal threats that might've been made during this situation. And so we're taking all that into account. I think our community knows us pretty well uh, in Alameda County. Uh, they know their sheriff's office pretty well. They know how serious we've been taking this. Um, we've put out very strong statements in regards to this and tomorrow we'll be meeting with uh, congressman swalwell uh, we'll be at the library to reassure the community uh, that they're safe and that their, their sheriff's office and their local law enforcement is going to be there to support uh, them in future endeavors uh, during the pride month thank you lieutenant ray kelly i appreciate your time we're actually going to look thank at you. the threats across this country including the supreme court New details in the alleged murder plot against Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And former Homeland Security Secretary, excuse me, Janet Napolitano, joins me to talk about the growing domestic terror danger. Next. Just one person may have stood in the way of last week's alleged murder plot against Justice Brett Kavanaugh. The police say that in the moments after suspect Nicholas Roski arrived outside of Kavanaugh's Maryland home, he texted his sister about his intentions, and she was the one to convince him to call 911 on himself. That makes today's passage of a bill that would extend security protections to Supreme Court justices' immediate family members all the more significant. Joining me now, Janet Napolitano former Homeland Security Secretary under President Obama. Secretary, thank you for being here tonight. You know, it's alarming to hear that this was the one person who possibly was able to foil an assassination plot by convincing this person to go to authorities. But we're seeing an enormous increase from the DHS's bulletin last week. It talks about the rise of people willing to turn to violence to address personal or political grievances. What's been your reaction to all this news unfolding? Well, you know, domestic extremism has been a problem in our country for uh, decades, if not centuries. Uh, I remember in 1995 working on the Oklahoma City bombing case with Tim McVeigh. Uh, but wh what we're seeing now seems to be of a different quality and kind. The, the number and types of incidents seems to be proliferating. And uh, from uh, the segment you just showed about the uh, uh, invasion of a, a children's hour at a public library to the um, arrests in Idaho over the weekend to um, uh, the individual who um, actually, in a way, turned himself in, but who had crossed the country in order to uh, attack Justice Kavanaugh. Um, the, these are um, all of a different, as I mentioned, quality and, and, and kind than we have seen before. The, the increase is alarming. And the increase, I want to show the audience, and what I'm showing them right now, Secretary, is that the threats and the inappropriate communications against the judiciary 
It's actually increased since 2021. It's up 587%. I mean, up 587%. I wonder what you attribute, although this has been, unfortunately, perpetually evergreen, the notion that people are willing to at least have some form of the domestic terrorism you're speaking about. What's different now? Is it the proliferation of social media and the ability to sort of find one's echo chamber and be able to galvanize in that way? Is that what might be different now? That's certainly uh, a big part of it. Um, uh, social media has uh, become like gasoline on a, on a fire. It's, in a, it's an accelerant. Um, and in terms of the uh, um, attacks on uh, the judiciary, part of it may be uh, the, the fact that the judiciary seems ever more in, in the news on ever more controversial items. Uh, so uh, they've become uh, bigger and bigger uh, targets. Um, and, you know, it's, it's unacceptable in our country that this should happen. Uh, um, you know, judges need to be able to do their jobs without having to have marshals outside in their driveways. Uh, uh, librarians ought to be able to have children's hours without worrying about Proud Boys coming in. Uh, par- parades ought to be able to happen with, without 31 armed men uh, coming in to, to try to uh, disrupt them. Uh, uh, and where it really gets worrisome is when it goes from active um, uh, protests um, uh, all the way now to uh, attempted violence or acts of violence. Secretary, I mean, to paraphrase James Baldwin, he often said, I love this country more than anyone else in any other country, which is why I reserve the right to perpetually criticize it. I emphasize the word criticize using the ballot box, of course, and elections and being able to vocalize one's position. But you're right, we have turned a very different corner now. The idea of people using the redress of grievances in this way What should be done in terms of preparing for this, though? If this is the trajectory, that criticism is no longer in the Baldwin-esque space and now turning to violence in a more um, prevalent way, how does the government prepare? How does the government try to deter and prevent? So I think uh, from a federal government perspective, the Department of Homeland Security needs to Uh, do all it can to share relevant information uh, to local communities, uh, uh, particularly to police departments and sheriff's offices. Um, uh, The FBI needs to be leaning forward uh, uh, into this. Uh, This clearly needs to be the top priority from a law enforcement perspective as we head into what could be a long, hot summer. Secretary Napolitano, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, President Biden is trying to reassure Americans about the economy as we go towards that perhaps long, hot, expensive summer, acknowledging the painful realities of our current inflation crisis and whether anything good can come out of his plan to meet with Saudi Arabia's MBS, given his record on human rights. I'll be back with Michelle, Casey and Ramesh next. So here's the oxmoronic statement or state of our economy and our politics. Tomorrow, the Federal Reserve is set to enact the largest interest rate hike in decades, meaning the biggest move yet to fight higher prices is to make 
Americans pay more for a home, a car, and of course a credit card. This at a time when you keep, you're keeping paying more every time you fill up. So news today at the producer price index, another key inflation measure, showed a slight slowdown is actually little comfort. You know that even as more people go back to work, companies are struggling to fill jobs. Even as workers make more money, it's still harder to feed your family or keep a roof over your head. This is uncharted territory for politics as well. I mean, going back to Reagan, as unemployment goes down, a president's approval numbers, well, they usually go up. But under Biden, unemployment has dropped quickly. Yet his approval numbers, especially on the economy and inflation, well, they're deep underwater. Try to make sense of all this with Michelle Cottle, Casey Hunt, and Ramesh Panuru, who is, are going to break down and solve all the world problems in this time slot right now. It's very difficult, though, to think about this. I mean, why is this sort of an inverse happening? Is mm. it the confluence of everything else, or is Biden just not getting it right? So I think that we have had some exceptions to the rule, where when we've had unemployment drop and we've had economic growth, but we've also had people thinking the economy was very bad. And what those periods tend to have in common is that wages are dropping, that the what, what you can command for a paycheck is going down. And that's been true of this economy, too, because wages have been growing, but they have not been keeping up with prices because prices are growing even faster. That's something that makes people unhappy. And more people are paying money at the pump, they're paying at the grocery bill, than are struggling with problems of unemployment. And so it hits more voters. So is the economy stupid still? You can tell people that the economy is doing well. You can tell people that wages, you know, are fine. And you can tell them that unemployment is really low. But when they go to the store, they know that what they're making is not covering things. Plus, you have supply chain issues. You have shortages of everything from baby formula to now there's some new tampon shortage. It's, It's one of these things where people know things aren't working well in their life, Plus, everybody's still extremely sour about this pandemic. Yeah. I mean, we are tired I of mean, COVID. I'm sorry, like, is anyone at this table, like, is this the happiest time in anyone's life? Like, I mean, let's be real. It's been a miserable two and a half years. I mean, people are miserable. And things are starting to get a little bit better. But every time it seems like we take one step forward, it's like there's two steps back. And, you know... It, and many people, you know, who make the least amount of money are the ones that are most affected by this because inflation is just so regressive. It, it affects, uh, you know, people who don't have extra cash uh, to to or have to take out loans, for example, uh, to cover to cover basic needs. If they so, qualify for the loans, if right? They that's even sure. part they have of the to put it on a credit card, you know, if that's if, something that's available to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and if not, then they're you know in in even worse straits. And I, actually, I was talking to. Um, a politician who started his career in the late 70s during the last great burst of inflation in the United States. And he was making this point that it's not just the economic consequences of inflation that matter to voters. As important as those are, there's also another layer, which is that it, it, it undermines people's sense of control and order and stability. It makes it feel like the ground is shifting beneath their feet. And it probably wants to enhance as well who they want to blame for it. Because thinking about that, I want to play for you what Biden had to say about an issue because he's been trying to, in many ways, assign the blame in other directions about why people are so unhappy. And by telling them, you're happy, you're happy, is not making them happy all of a sudden. Let's hear what President Biden had to say. I'm doing everything in my power to blunt Putin's gas price hike. Exxon made more money than God this year. Ted Cruz and the other ultra-MAGA Republicans are going to vote on whether you'll have Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. 
So is he pointing the blame in the right direction? Is this feeling like deflection, displacement? What do you think? It doesn't really matter. The reality of politics is if you are the president, you are going to take the blame for this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. If people are feeling bad about the direction the country is going in, if they are feeling bad about how much their paycheck can get them, how expensive gas prices are, you can talk to them all day long about the war in Ukraine, about you know, supply-side shortages, about China. You can, you can talk to them about whatever. The president's going to take the hit for And it. the reality is Democrats were wrong about inflation. I mean, Janet Yellen acknowledged as much just a few days ago. I mean, she said, yeah, like, they, they, they insisted it was going to be transitory, probably wasn't going to be that big of a deal, and, like, that was incorrect. And I think voters saw that happen. Um, they know who's running the government, and they're going to take it out on the people in charge. It doesn't really matter who else might be to blame. They, that's the main strategy going into a midterm is to say, well, the other guy would be a lot worse. But the reality is it's just not that effective. Well, there's also a time when sometimes if you're a flip-flopper or not acknowledging you got something wrong or talking in absolutes can be problematic as a politician. But then there's this new issue that's happening with President Biden where he is talking about going to have a visit in Saudi Arabia with MBS. And I remember, if you remember as well, there was a time on the campaign trail when he spoke about wanting to make this nation a, um, a pariah and spoke in very absolute terms on this issue. And, and now he is going there. I want to play through some of the people in his own party have said about this very issue and how they would not go. It's not just Republicans against Democrats. This is an intra-party conflict now. Let's listen in. I wouldn't go. I wouldn't shake his hand. This is someone who butchered an American resident, uh, cut him up into pieces in the, in the most uh, terrible and premeditated way. I will support President Biden in his outreach uh, to MBS and to the Saudi kingdom. I have every confidence that, Senate, uh, that President Biden will handle this very well. He has every confidence. What do you guys think? I mean, I think this is about politics more than anything else. Uh, and the, it just underscores how difficult the politics are for the president right now of what's going on with gas prices. It shows you it's really everything because they are having to give up a lot. Uh, they're, they're losing a lot of faith there. I mean, this is D.C. is renaming the street in front of the Saudi embassy Khashoggi Way, right? Like, that's what's going on here in this country. And the president's still willing to go do this. Mm. Well, if that's what's happening and you think about how this is going to play out politically down the road and what goes on next, I mean... Politics is going to have its place, and it still is today. We'll wait for the primary results as well. Michelle, Casey, Ramesh, thank you so much for being here tonight. Up next, a black driver behind the wheel was speeding. A white police officer pulls the car over. Now, if you think you know where this is going, just wait until you learn what happens next. Frankly, it's one of the most heartwarming stories you've probably heard in a while, and we all need it. And we have two very special guests who are going to help share that important moment next and explain this picture. A traffic stop with a twist. CNN writer John Blake brings us the story from South Carolina, where Ashley Wilkerson was driving with her father, Tony, back in March, when a state trooper pulled her over for speeding. Now, as she apologized, her father started defending her mustering his strength to tell the trooper that his, quote, baby girl, unquote, was driving him home from his chemotherapy treatment. Now, that detail touched the officer's heart so much that instead of a speeding ticket, he offered instead a prayer. Ashley described the encounter in an Instagram post honoring her dad, Tony, writing, quote, the officer took a deep breath, he sighed, and he said that he too had loved ones who battled cancer as well. He asked if he could pray with you, 
And when you all were done, there was a small silver cross that he placed in your hand for you to keep with you as a symbol of your faith. Now, sadly, two months later, Tony lost his battle with cancer. But Ashley is still in touch with the trooper who was so kind to them both. His name is Jarrett Doty, and he and Ashley join me now. It's so nice to see both of you here today. It's so often that we don't have as feel-good stories about traffic stops, but this one, when I read about it, it just touched my heart. I I wonder if your perspective, Ashley, what went through your mind when you first heard those sirens and, and saw your and heard your father trying to defend his baby girl? Well, first, let me say thank you so much for having me today uh, to be able to speak about the man that is near and dear to my heart, my dad, um, especially this Father's Day weekend uh, that's upcoming. Um, Obviously, you never want to hear sirens (laughs) and you never want to see the blue lights flash behind you. Um, And so the first question was, you know, uh, Ash, that's what my dad would refer to me as. Ash, is that is that for you? Is that behind you? Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't know, Dad. Let me check. Let me look. And so I looked at my speed. I looked for a speed limit uh, sign to my right. And I said, yes, Dad, I'm speeding. That's for me. Uh, and so I immediately pulled over to the right side uh, so that I could be summoned by the officer at that time. And he's here with us now, that very officer who was behind you. And I know that you have said that you don't want to make this about you um, and and really wanted to honor not only Ashley, but also her father. But something about the way he stood up for his baby girl really touched your heart. You, You felt a kind of kinship with him in that moment. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yes, ma'am. Again, I echo what Ashley said. Thank you for having me here. It's a, it's an honor to be on your show. Um, yes, I did relate to him in that manner. I have a 12-year-old daughter myself, and she's she's my my little princess, um, like Ashley is, was to her daddy. And, um, you know, when I first approached the vehicle, I introduced myself to her. I told her who I was and why I stopped her. Um I requested for her driver's license and registration. And while she was getting those things is when Mr. Gaddis spoke up and told me that that was his baby girl and he was uh, bringing or she was bringing him home from chemotherapy at, at Duke Hospital. I noticed he was laying back in his seat. He was he was very soft-spoken. His voice was a little raspy. He just looked like he was tired and, you know, a sick man. And at that moment in time, my heart just went out to him. In fact, you'd battled your own um, health conditions as well. And so you had recognized some parts of yourself within his experience. And you didn't even realize, I understand, Ashley, you, you were so taken aback by the fact that he came back and asked instead. He gave you a warning, first of all, for, for speeding, yeah. allegedly. I would say allegedly. I'm a lawyer, so allegedly speeding. He gave you that warning, of course. And then <laughs> he asked if he could pray with you. And you snapped that photograph. He wasn't even aware of that very moment. What, what made you want to take that picture and capture that moment? Well, you know, for two reasons. Um, The first reason, my dad was a very, very private person about his uh, journey battling cancer. He battled colon cancer Mm -hmm. for two years. And so he was very private. And I was actually shocked that he uh, disclosed that information to the officer. Matter of fact, I asked him, Dad, why did you tell the officer your condition? 
And he said, I wouldn't want you penalized for taking care of me. I never want you to get in trouble. I wouldn't want that on my conscience. Um, and so that was the first and foremost reason is because even in his sick moment, uh, as you mentioned, he passed away two months after that date. He was still working to defend me and protect me. Um, and he didn't want me to get in trouble at that time. So that was the first reason. Um, but the second reason is because the officer, Officer Doty, leaned into his humanity in that moment. Oftentimes when we are tasked to do a job, especially a job like that where you're trained to give a ticket, to give the citation, he leaned into his humanity at that moment. He listened. He heard my dad's voice. He saw his ailing condition. He recognized um, the pouch that was on my dad at the time that signaled that he had been in treatment and he was concerned. Mm. And so he took it a step beyond um, and he cared in that moment. He yeah. nurtured us in that moment and he offered prayer with my dad. He, you know, he said, if it doesn't offend you, is it okay if I pray yeah. with you? And my dad was a chairman of the deacon board. And so he welcomed the prayer and I took it. Uh, neither one of them knew at right. the time. And my dad did not like social media. So and yet, and yet Ashley, <laughs> I want to leave, I'll leave with this moment because you say he leaned into humanity. And, and one thing that you've kept is what he leaned in and put into the palm of your father's hand. And it's the picture we have here. Yes of this cross that he gave cross. to your father. Yes. I know you treasure it today. A family man himself, Ashley Wilkerson, Trooper Jarrett Doty. Thank you both for this story. I think we all needed to hear about someone leaning in to their humanity today. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thanks for watching. John Lemon Tonight starts right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.